This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to start with a family photo. Okay, so this is my niece, Allison. She's about seven years old. And this is also my niece, Allison, right after birth. So what's going on here? There's something very unusual about our species, right? We take it for granted that our newborns come out with a very large amount of body fat under the skin or subcutaneous fat. We even have a name for it, baby fat, and we consider it a mark of health. But this is actually a very unusual characteristic. So if you look across other species, like gorilla, for instance, they come out skinny. Here's a baboon, also very skinny. Okay, and almost 20 years ago, I compiled all of the information I could about body fat and newborns and published a paper on it, and this is what I found. These species here, as you can see, are all about 3% body fat or less at birth. And this includes species like elephant seals, black bear, pigs, okay? So typical mammals. Over here you have harp seals, guinea pigs, and and the very fattest species that I could find evidence for was us at about 15% body fat. Now, preparing for this talk, I went into the literature and tried to find any more data points that have been published, especially on primates. Notice here that the only primate that I could find was a baboon at about 3%. We have some more data points now. So we have macaques, squirrel monkeys, another species of macaque, all less than 3%. Over here on the left, you'll see that there's a new species that I found that's actually a little bit fatter than us, it seems. But there's only two individuals in that, in that sample, and they're clinical. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're a clinical sample, not a wild sample. So we'll see how that, that shakes out. But it really doesn't fundamentally change the story. It's pretty clear that this is an unusual characteristic for us. We're born with a lot of body fat. And not only that, now look at body fat development postnatally. What this shows is skin fold thickness. So this is how you measure the the thickness of the subcutaneous fat. You take a skin fold and you literally measure it with a caliper. And this is the average here, this red line, so within the population. And you see that we're born with a lot of fat, but then right after birth we put lots of calories into putting on more fat. And our fat actually peaks out uh, during the first year of life. And then it declines to that very low point that I showed you earlier in kind of mid-childhood. So the question that I want to pose today is why are our newborns so unusually fat and yet our children are so lean? Okay. And before getting into this, I want to dispel one myth that, that you'll find out there. Like if you look at old pediatric textbooks, there's this idea that, yes, this is an unusual characteristic of our species. And perhaps it's insulation because we lost uh, hair. So we lost our hair, and we need this kind of insulatory layer of blubber to compensate for that. Now, there's a lot of evidence against that. It it sounds like a neat idea. But we don't have any evidence that humans preferentially deposit fat under the skin. What happens is the more fat you put on, the more fat you get under the skin. It's a good place to put it, right? So there's nothing that suggests that we've kind of anatomically adapted ourselves for that kind of insulatory layer. There are human populations that live in the high uh, Arctic, right, places like... uh, Alaska and so forth, that where you, where you see biological adaptations to conserve heat. You see shorter limbs and you see sh- shorter stature. What this does is it reduces skin uh, surface area and reduces heat loss, right? In those populations, you see no evidence for thicker skin folds. In fact, they tend to have slightly thinner skin folds than their temp- temperate ladder pop, uh, populations. And then finally, you could look at newborns and just see studies have done this to try to figure out what it is that predicts thermal stability. And it's not the th- skin fold thicknesses that matter. It seems to be the muscle mass, which is where the heat is being generated, right? So I didn't find a lot of evidence to support this idea that, that, that uh, this excessive amount of subcutaneous fat, especially in our, in our newborns, is related to insulation. 
And so I proposed a different idea, a kind of competing idea, and that is the key to understanding our unusually fat babies may lie in another unique human trait, our unusually large and energetically costly brains. And the idea here is that if you have a large and energetically costly brain, you're going to need effectively a bigger battery to, to back it up during a period of shortage. Right, and so that's the idea that I want to dig into today. We're going to explore. We're going to talk a bit about the human brain, its energetic costs, and, and why we need a bigger energy backup. Then I'm going to tell you about some new work that some collaborators and I published last year that quantifies the cost of the brain across the life cycle from infancy onward, or actually from birth onward. And then finally, we're going to bring all this together with some other information and try to make sense of this pattern of fat development that we see in humans. Okay, so let's start with this first point. So we're a brainy species. The last four million years, as you see here, you've seen a lot of increase in, in brain size. And as I've already alluded to, this is important energetically because brain is costly tissue. So a gram of adult brain uses about 15 times the energy of a gram of muscle. And all of you are sitting here right now, you're adults, your bodies are putting off heat at about 100 watts. So that's the amount of heat you're generating, kind of warming up the room. 20 of those watts, or 20% of your resting metabolic rate, is accounted for by the brain. Now, that may not seem that impressive, and it may even seem a little dim, but if you compare us to other species, you'll see that that's actually pretty remarkable. So all these species over here are in the order of 2 to 3% of resting metabolic rate goes to the brain. Here you see there's a couple uh, primate species, spider monkeys and chimpanzees at about 10%, and then human adults are at 20%. Now... If you look at the newborn, of course, the size of the head is so much larger compared to the body, so that number is going to be a lot bigger in the newborn. And sure enough, in the old literature, the estimate had been that 60% of the resting metabolism is necessary just to keep the brain going. Now, this is important. It's not only just costly, but it has other ramifications. Because unlike other tissues and organs, you can't turn the brain down. You can't dim it, right? It, let's say that you're starving or are under nutritional stress. The brain has a constant metabolic rate, whether you're sleeping, active, what have you. It has to be maintained. And without that, without access to that energy, you get brain damage. Okay, so naturally it makes sense that we need to have a bigger energy backup. And in fact, you can think of an analogy from day-to-day -day life that I think illustrates this. That would be a mortgage. Every month, you ha if you have a house and you have a house mortgage, you have to pay that mortgage, right? And if you don't, you have to foreclose. So if you lose your job, you better have money in your savings, savings account in order to cover that mortgage for the period that you're, you're unemployed. The bigger your mortgage, the bigger the savings account you're going to need to have to avoid foreclosure, right? So it's the same sort of logic. Effectively, our newborns have a mortgage that accounts for 60% 60, 60 of their budget, right? So they need to have a very big savings account. Now, we, so maybe this, this, this gives us, you know, some insights into what's going on at birth, but we also have to understand why we become so lean by childhood, right? We set up both of those problems. And so maybe it's the change in the size of that mortgage that matters. So let's go ahead and start to look at that. What this shows here is the percentage of body weight that's accounted for by the brain at different ages in humans, and at birth, as you can see, it's about 12% of body weight, okay? And then it declines, all right, as that, as that ratio of brain size to body uh, size also declines. And so perhaps, you know, we need a lot of, we, we need this big energy buffer back here because our brains really dominate the budget, but down here, less so, all right? Maybe that's what's going on. Well, unfortunately, it's not that simple because all we're looking at in that last graph is the size of the brain. There are other factors to take into account because energy used by a gram of brain is actually very dynamic during development, and this relates to the high cost of learning during childhood. What makes the brain costly are synapses, that is, the connections between nerves. 
And the number of synapses changes uh, very dramatically. So let's take a look at that. These are data, classic data on synaptic densities. So this is telling us how many synapses there are, how many neural connections there are within a gram of brain. And you can see that it goes way up quickly after birth and peaks out during childhood, and then it declines again. There's a process of pruning. So this, this entire period of very high synaptic connectivity is all about learning during childhood. And what it means for our perspective is that there's a need for energy to buoy that, that excess neuronal activity. So how does one go about measuring that, that energy? Well, positron emission tomography imaging, this PET imaging, is one way you can do this. This, is what me- this allows you to measure the rate of glucose uptake in the brain. And Harry Chugani, in a classic paper from 1987 that I'm showing here, did this in kids from birth all the way up to adulthood. And you can see these folks over here on the, on the right are the adults. So this dotted line is the adult level of glucose uptake. All right. At birth, each gram of brain tissue is using about 30% less glucose than the adult brain. That's because the synapses haven't proliferated yet. And then by childhood, it's actually twice the adult rate. Okay, so it's much higher. And then you get the pruning, and it prunes down to the adult level eventually. And so what we need okay, to really take into account what's going on with the brain is not just to account for the size of the brain, but we also need to, to take into account this changing energy density, this changing energy uh, use rate related to, to learning. And so this is actually something that I and my collaborators uh, at Northwestern University, at Wayne State, and at Georgetown, and George uh, Washington University set out to do, and we published a paper on this last year. I'm going to tell you what we did very quickly. We started with Chugani's PET data, which I've already shown you. That tells us how much glucose each gram of brain is using. Then to get the global cost of the brain, we actually need to know how many grams of brain there are. And for that, we use brain uh, volume data from, from MRI. And you do all that, you do the, the numbers, and you get total brain energy costs. There's many more steps involved, but that's sort of a, a simplified version. So when you do that, this is what we find. Right, so this shows brain glucose uptake from birth until 15 years of age, and 15 years is the last PET measurement, so that's where we stopped. And you can see that it peaks out at about five years of age. It's higher in males because they're just bigger. There's no real biological difference there. Now, there's a remarkable story here, okay? So uh, brain glucose uptake at five years of age is about twice the adult level. You can see this dotted line here, okay? So their brains are using twice the energy of the adult brain, despite the fact that their brains haven't even fully reached adult size yet, and despite the fact that their bodies are one-third the size. So this is a remarkable burden on their bodies energetically. And so that's what we want to take into account. Let's look at the next step here. Let's look at, instead of looking at grams of glucose, let's consider brain energetics as a, as a fraction of the resting metabolic rate like we did earlier. And when we do it that way, we see that it's peaking out at about five years of age, four or five years of age again. And at that point, okay, two-thirds of all resting calories are going to the brain which is pretty remarkable, right? This leaves only one-third of the calories to do everything else. And so clearly some other functions must have been shortchanged in us. And one of those functions that did get shortchanged, it looks like, was body weight growth. So what this shows here is the rate of body weight gain. And as, you, as we all know, infants grow very quickly, and then the rate of weight gain slows down, right? And so that they start to grow quite slowly by age five or so, or during childhood. You, you almost don't see them growing. You, you notice their development, but you don't see them getting bigger and bigger, right? And then, gradually, uh, weight gain takes off again with puberty. Let's superimpose the brain energetics curve on that. There's pretty clearly a nice relationship between these two. As the brain becomes increasingly costly... 
okay, because of brain growth and the, the proliferation of those synapses, those costly synapses, uh, body weight growth is, is going down. When the brain is at its most costly, body weight growth is at its lowest, and then it reverses with puberty, right? So clearly there's something very interesting going on here, and it looks like one of the ways that we were able to, to support these very high energetic costs related to our brain development is by taking calories that would have gone into growth and putting them into the brain, right? So we're kind of subsidizing that. And one of the things that suffers from that is fat stores, because that's why we have such low adiposity during this era, because we're basically shutting down growth and we're shutting down fat deposition. Now, this leads to a bit of a paradox and what would appear to be a challenge for a hypothesis, right? Because we've got the age of lowest energy reserves when our savings account is at its lowest, coinciding with the age when our mortgage is at its highest, right? So this looks very precarious. And, you know, doesn't this potentially pose a problem for a hypothesis? If baby fat is a brain battery, how can body fat reach its lowest level at the age when the brain's energy needs are greatest? And the answer is, you don't necessarily need a large savings account if you've got wealthy relatives and friends who are willing to lend to you. And so that's what goes on. Let's take, let's take a look at this. As children grow and develop, they shift from relying on their onboard energy buffer, their body fat, to social buffering. Right? So the, the effectiveness of social buffering increases, and as that happens, the reliance on body fat goes down. And we're going to take a look at this. Let's start early on when there's this high reliance on body fat, as we've already talked about. Why do we rely on body fat early? The reason is this, because of the cause of, of nutritional stress. Early in life, the main causes of nutritional stress are actually infectious disease. And forget about the common cold. Think about environments that are less sanitized than, than ours. Uh, infections can be quite severe. And this is really the cause of, for instance, under five mortality, infant mortality. It's all about undernutrition, and most of it is driven by infection. And it's easy to see why, because kids, when they get sick, they get anorexia. They stop eating. And then diarrheal diseases are very common. This is a very common infliction in infancy. This impairs digestion. So your parents and your caregivers can have all the calories and the food in the world, but if you stop eating and you don't digest, you're not going to get access to them, which forces you to go internal and rely on your own onboard energy reserves. That's the only, really the only strategy that you have. Add on top of this fever, right, which actually increases your energy expenditure and sort of makes the whole thing worse. So that's the point. The common symptoms related to infections cut the baby off from caregivers and force a reliance internally on their own, on their own battery. And so here we see the, the uh, age trends in diarrheal illness globally. And you see that it really peaks out in late infancy in the second half of the first year. And this coincides with weaning and the introductions of foods that are often not sterile. And newborns are born without antibodies, right? Which is why they get sick so much. But every time they get sick, they acquire antibodies and they become more and more protected moving forward. So as infants age, they, they acquire these protective antibodies and the infections then plummet, right? So they're really not a problem by four to five years of age, or not as much. And as those infections go down, they're no longer being cut off from their caregivers, and they can start to benefit from some of the, really, the unique features of the way we raise our kids. And I'm going to talk about that. It'll be the last point we talk about. If we look at other mammals, food comes from the mother, right? Breast milk. And then eventually you get weaned, and you, and you self-provision. In our species, fathers are a part of the picture, both in terms of provisioning and care, but there's a whole cast of other characters. This is something fairly unique to us. We're considered cooperative breeding species because many individuals are, are involved in raising our kids. And importantly, those human caregivers, in turn, are embedded within networks based on cooperation and food sharing. Let's take a look at this. So here's an example where there's four hunters that are not sharing. 
The, the second individual down has a kill and the others don't, so they go hungry. On this day, the first individual has a kill, but the others go hungry, and so on, right? So it's kind of a feast-famine scenario. Here's this, the same scenario where they're sharing, where this individual shares with other folks under the assumption that they're going to share with, them, with him when they have a kill, right? And so in this kind of system with food sharing, everybody gets to eat every day. You don't have the feast-famine. And this is what we do. If you look at uh, data from hunter-gatherer societies like the Hiwi and the Aceh from uh, lowland Amazon in South America, this shows the number of families that receive part of the kill. This is very common. Food sharing, food flows between families. Here's another interesting study that was done among the Hadza. And here they were, the individuals were given honey sticks, and there was an economic game, and the, and the researchers evaluated how honey flowed through the society. And as you can see, it's flowing all over the place, right, to both genetic kin uh, and to in-laws and to friends, right? So if somebody up here comes up short one day, there's going to be food coming from elsewhere, all right? So our caregivers, there's not only multiple caregivers taking care of our kids, but they're embedded in these networks of cooperation and food sharing, which buffer. And it's for this reason that I think we can go out on a limb as children. Our children go way out on a limb because they're maxing out the size of their mortgage at a point when they have a minimal savings account. They can do it because they're embedded within those networks. So to summarize and come back to where I began, our babies are born with a lot of fat, okay? And, they, and the reasons for this are that they have extremely high uh, energy requirements of their brains that are fragile, combined with the fact that the, pr- the primary cause of nutritional stress at this age is infection, which cuts them off from caregivers and forces a reliance on internal stores. The situation's very different by childhood. The brain is even more costly, okay? But now they're embedded within and benefit from that social buffering that's so effective. And they no longer need to put those calories away in a savings account. They can use them for the things that matter at this age, learning and child development. And that's all. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.